Welcome to Coppercast, a show dedicated to exploring the wonderful and technical world of institutional investment into digital assets. I'm your host, Fadi Abualfa, Copper's Head of Research, and today our guest is none other than Anthony Scaramucci, founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital. Anthony needs no introduction, and if you need one, that's what Google is for. Anthony, welcome to our show. Well, I mean, the one thing I want to add is I'm a Copper user, and I think you guys have a fabulous product, and I think people need to learn more about copper. So I'm thrilled to be on the show, Uh, but I want to congratulate you on your team. And I want to congratulate you on the way copper is managed, particularly as a result of this volatile and very violent environment, you guys have been a safe haven for people. And so I want to congratulate you on that. Thank you, Anthony. I think everyone listening at copper is going to really appreciate that. I think I'd like to, to kind of start discussing Skybridge a bit, the investment management yep. firm that you've founded, yep. what, nearly two decades now. Tell us a little bit about the firm's pivot into crypto and perhaps if your timing was a little bit off, what you've learned from your experience over the last couple of years and yep. what you might be doing differently. Let's talk about an elephant that's actually in the room for me is that uh, we've got this woman, Kathy Burton, that uh, went to a few disgruntled employees and uh, she wrote this, I mean, I mean, I don't know, it was like 10,000 word article about us that we suck and I suck and that we're dead. And she was basically writing my obituary. The problem with writing my obituary, it's like my fifth obituary. Um, And I'm actually not going anywhere. And people forget that I've got 35 years in the business. I grew up in a middle-class family. So guess what? I'm a saver. Uh, The firm has over $55 million on its balance sheet. So that's cash or cryptocurrencies that's sitting in a bank account or sitting at copper or coinbase and so it's very hard to go out of business if you're sitting with 55 60 million dollars on your balance sheet um and the article is fine people can write whatever they want but you have to remember something about life Fadi. if you're a non-conformist which i happen to be and you're an outsider which i definitely am you're going to get attacked you know they don't hit the establishment um, we reduced the tender on our core fund. It's a $2 billion fund uh, to a 5% tender. And that caused a uh, cause celeb for Bloomberg. But Blackstone did the exact same thing on their B-REIT. Uh, and I guess they must be a big advertiser for Bloomberg. So they didn't get an article written about them. So the, the point being is we're in a difficult business environment. Uh, we're doing the things that you would expect us to do to manage our business properly and to protect our clients. And I'm a nonconformist, so, and I'm also, you know, jumping out of helicopters on reality shows. Uh, I think they set my ass on fire in the Wadi Rum desert last summer. I ran out of the house, had to put myself out of fire, which is not the first time I've been fired, by the way. We could talk about that. And so people don't like that. They, they want conformity. But if you're going to move people into the future, then you can't be a conformist. You know, uh, Elon Musk was dying in 2008. He started a commercial space company uh, a few years prior to that. It was going out of business. He bought into and eventually became Tesla. That was also going out of business, uh, but he stuck to it. And now he's the richest person in the world. Um, the, the business that I hope we're going to talk about, the cryptocurrency markets, copper, Bitcoin, are going to be 10x in five years. Uh, so Bitcoin is going to be $300,000 in five years. And just being in the seat, even if I'm partially stupid, I'm going to make a lot of money for my clients. And so I have to take the heat 
because it's a volatile asset and it's an asset that is non-conformist. And so a result of which is going to get attacked by the press, attacked by Elizabeth Warren, who's George Washington's grandmother, attacked by Gary Gensler, who's like the real life Jiminy Cricket. And he's going to try to take that out on the rest of us. And so we have to deal with that in the interim. So, so for me, if I'm sitting on something that's going to be 10x in five years, I'll take the heat from any press officer, any media person, um, and I will stay in my position of nonconformity, which has frankly served me very, very well. So you're talking about timing. Skybridge entered the space in October, November 2020. So our cost on Bitcoin is about 18000 uh, yes, we did buy some at 50000 but if you averaged it all in, we were buying some at 15000 16000 the bulk of it, some at fifty. It's probably 18000 maybe $18,500. Um, we are in the money right now. If you asked me the question in December, I would say, yeah, we're underwater. This thing's $16,500. we are underwater. Uh, but Bitcoin is an asset. If you can hold it for a five-year period of time, any rolling five-year period of time, you've outperformed every other asset. And so to really understand what is going on, you have to understand that this is the hardest money that you can come across. If you read Safadin Amos's book, The Bitcoin Standard, uh, this is the hardest money. This is uncorruptible. We've used the phenomenal technology in our world to create something that's decentralized, don't have to trust anybody for it, don't have to have a third party give it to you that's going to manipulate it like our governments do. Uh, and when you really understand it, uh, it'll be a very, very valuable asset to my grandchildren. And so I want to be one of the early pioneers. And if I'm going to take a few arrows, you know, you guys probably didn't play the Oregon Trail, which was like a, uh, it was like a video game. Okay, you know, maybe you did play it, but you know, you could die of dysentery on the way to Oregon as you were going through the Northwest Passage. So I've taken a few arrows on my back. I've had some metaphorical dysentery, but I'm making it to Oregon, Fatty. And my firm is going to make it to Oregon. And hopefully you'll be there with me in five years from now when Bitcoin's at 300,000 and the firm's running $8 billion. People say, yeah, you know, he hung in there when everybody was shitting on him. You have young listeners that are listening to your podcast, so they should really listen to this. What other people think of you is none of your goddamn business, okay? And so stop with the stupid social media and looking at other people's filtered lives. And I don't even know how you young people are taking pictures of people's food. I don't even get that. But cut it out, okay? Don't focus on someone's filtered life. Trust me, they're having a bad and good day too. They're not having a perfect day. No one has a perfect day. And don't care what other people think of you if you really want to change things for the better in a society or a world or in an investment practice. So that's a big message that I think, because uh, you have a lot of young people listening. They follow that at a young age. They're going to have really happy lives. I think our, our audience is also quite, quite up there and maybe not completely plugged into the Instagram world as of today. But for those uh, who are a little bit young and uh, a little bit plugged into this sort of matrix, snap out of it. Um, right. Amen. Amen. And if you're old, don't give a shit either. And if you're old listening to this, man, you better own some Bitcoin because, and you better buy some Ethereum and you better get into the asset class because any Nash game theory analysis of the situation, a half or 1% holding 
is going to serve you and your family very well. Let's say that I'm wrong. Okay. Your 1% goes to zero. It doesn't capitally impair you, but I would not want to miss this asset class. And anybody that really studies the asset class and does the homework understands what's going on, but also understands the challenge to the establishment and understands why the establishment is coming so hard at the asset class. So from, from what I understood, um, you've got about a third of your total exposure in digital assets, if I'm not mistaken. Um, about, and- right. Yeah. Well, it, you know, listen, it, it's moving, you know, it was it moves. Sure. at the peak, it was a third. Right. In the decline, it's about 19% right now, but here's the thing. I haven't sold anything. So right. it could go back to a third. People are upset with me. Why didn't you sell it at 69,000? You bought it at 17, 18,000. Why don't you sell it at 69,000 and rebuy it at 16? Well, okay, first of all, I'm not smart enough to do that. Uh, secondarily, uh, it was a five-year macroeconomic bet on what's happening in the global society and what's happening to the adoption rate of something like Bitcoin and understanding Metcalf's law. And so I don't want to do that. I want to close my eyes and hold it for five years. Let's take a look at it then. And then you can yell at me then if you want or not yell at me. But, you know, the the, the point being, uh, it's 19% right now. It peaked at 33. You're correct. Right. So from from what I've gathered is that you hold the investment thesis that Bitcoin might become a store of value. You're not sure of it. You're not a maxi by any means. You're much more lucid in your approach to this. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer that Bitcoin will be, you know, some people believe it'll be the global currency and it'll be the exchange. It'll be the Bitcoin standard. I'm not that person. I don't, because there's just too many things that happen in the world that you can't foresee or predict. And I also believe that the U.S., they finally admitted this, you know, Janet Yellen admitted this, the sanctions that they put on Russia have hurt the U.S. dollar, hasn't helped the U.S. dollar because when you do something like that, you create an impetus for your adversaries to join forces and come up with a different solution for themselves. You know, you're better off letting things be free. You know, this is the problem with Gensler. You're better off allowing for the innovation to happen in your own country and the intellectual capital to flourish in your own country than for political purposes to try to stymie it. I mean, you got China opening up with Hong Kong. They, okay, we kicked out the miners. We made a mistake. Let's reopen this and revisit it. And you got the U.S. going in the opposite direction. So I don't know. I mean, I, I don't really understand the political leadership here. Um, but, but to me, you know, because you're asking really good questions, what I would say to you is we got to get involved. We got to get involved with the hiring decisions of these politicians. There's 77 million people that have wallets now. And we have to express to people that we want the growth, we want the innovation. And the US, if you're confident, you don't build walls. Okay, you built the Berlin Wall to keep people from leaving. Okay, if you're worried about the dollar, you don't kick out Bitcoin. You invite Bitcoin in because what happens is you're strengthening your economy. You know, worry about your infrastructure, worry about your education. Don't do things that you think are going to protect the dollar by crimping freedom, intellectual capital growth, and economic innovation. Go the other way. Strengthen the economy. The dollar represents almost like a stock in your country, you know? You've opened up a lot of different topics 
before we jump into sort of the whole Russia, China, BRICS conundrums that are going to emerge in the future, um, I want to just go back to Bitcoin before we head towards central banks and discuss that a little bit more. Um, do you actually believe that the world needs another store of value or are we really discussing the displacement of gold through technology? And if technology, if technology is the sort of impetus of all of this, can tokenized gold then give a Bitcoin a run for its money? So a good, really good question. So I obviously don't know the answer that I can only speculate with you. Sure. Um, I don't know if we need another store of value. We don't need another store of value. But if I gave you something that's immutable, can't create any more of it, has all of the properties. Like if you need, read Professor Neil Ferguson's book, The Ascent of Money, we know that we use different totems and different technologies in lieu of bartering with each other. And they develop. They can start as seashells. They can move to wampum. They can be silver coins with political figures profile stamped on them or gold coins. And we evolve to magnetic strips and just, you know, think about the way we wire money to each other. It's just a digit in a in an account. That's a spreadsheet too, right? People should not forget that. So to me, if you have something that's immutable, transportable, and clearly delineated and transparent and locked from a safety perspective, I think that's going to grow and people are going to adopt it and it will be a store of value. Now, is it going to replace gold or be additive to gold? I don't know, but I'm a big believer in the future of the world and in the great abundance that the world can produce for man and womankind. And so therefore, you know, it could be additive. It doesn't necessarily have to replace it. But let me tell you what one of my uh, friends who's a, uh, he's a sheikh, will say that it's an undisclosed country for the purposes of this conversation. I was at a conference and he came over to me. He's been a client of mine for 20 years. And he said to me, you know, I hear you talking about Bitcoin and Bitcoin is uh, like gold and blah, blah. He goes, let me tell you something. He says, Bitcoin is way better than gold. And I said, it's way better than gold? Yes. He goes, let me explain to you why it's way better than gold. He goes, right now in my country, the government loves me. He says, but someday the government may not like me. Okay, I got a USB with $200 million of Bitcoin on it. And I can stick it where the sun doesn't shine and I can leave the country immediately. You can't put $200 million of gold anywhere on your body and leave a country. I just want you to think about that for a second in terms of the portability and the efficiency of Bitcoin. Now, Fadi, forget about you and me. Let's talk about your grandkid, okay? And maybe that's 30 years from now. Maybe it's 60 years from now. That kid, man or woman, is going to own Bitcoin. That kid is going to be in the full digital world, is going to be fully comfortable owning an artistic representation of something in an NFT that's digitized, and is going to fully accept that they could have a store of value that's digital, okay? Fully accept it. And since we're talking about this stuff, let me just bring something up here because I got, I got props on me. You mind if I... I mean, I know it's an audio cast, but let's just, for the purposes of the discussion, I'm holding up some Italian singles. These are $100 bills, also known as Italian singles. I'm holding them up, okay? And so these are made out of fabric. You could look this up on Google. It's it's 75% cotton, 25% linen. And we're back in our freshman philosophy. Is this worth anything? 
Is it worth anything? Of course it's not worth anything. It's got a magnetic strip on it, a counterfeit strip. It's got some ink on it. It's not worth anything, but we trust this. I'm going to give this to the valet tonight at the restaurant. He's going to be very happy, okay? Or I give this to the maid when I'm leaving the hotel room. She's hugging me, okay? Because she knows she can give this to somebody else. That's Bitcoin, okay? And it didn't have to come from the government, and we're not making any more of it. Okay, this, unfortunately, is getting corrupted. So this $100 bill has $2 worth of 1971 purchasing power. You want to take it off the gold standard like we did in August of 1971? It was $35 an ounce, eight fifteen seventy one. Okay, it's $2,000 an ounce today. We crushed this. We took this down by 98.5%. Okay, so guys, you tell me if we have a better system and better technology and we can make the money harder and safer and we can keep it away from these drunk drivers, which are these central banks that are driving irresponsibly with our money, okay? I don't know. I think that's going to catch on. If you don't understand this or you don't believe this or you don't get it, I'm sorry. I just don't have the time to explain it to you. You're either going to get it or you're not going to get it. And that's only 14 years ago. And look at the growth in the last 14 years. Sure, but we, we, we've got a lot to sort of kind of establish with the crypto world. We've had a lot of sort of fraud and bad actors and wild wild west days from ICOs that that completely rugged people and NFTs that rugged people. So we've we and I think you're you're one of the few people that have discussed self-regulatory organizations and I mean we're and I think Coinbase is trying to do something with the trust initiative, which Copper is also part of, and and that's a regulatory sort of self-regulatory operation where we're trying to abide by the travel rule. And there's a lot of different crypto organizations in that. I mean, even today, Coinbase's CEO, Brian Armstrong, said that everything's on the table and it's possible that Coinbase leaves the US if the regulatory regime continues to be so unfavorable. Right. And we're seeing a lot of other countries open for business. Why is the U.S. having such a deeply negative response to this industry? Well, there's a number of different reasons, but uh, the main reason is Elizabeth Warren. Okay, so she is the shadow president for financial services. So when she dropped out of that race, and if you remember, uh, Joe Biden was likely, if you had seven candidates in the race, Bernie Sanders could have beaten Joe Biden. So they got together and they said, Buttigieg's going to drop out, Warren's going to drop out, Harris, et cetera, and they're going to align themselves with Joe Biden. And so in exchange for that, she's become the shadow financial services president of the country, which is why Gary Gensler, who, I mean, he's the only guy, I mean, he's a white male from Goldman Sachs. He thinks he's going to be secretary of treasury. He could be the only one in Washington that thinks that about himself, but he's aligned himself with Elizabeth Warren, the shadow financial services president, because he thinks he's going to be the successor to Gary Gensler, and she hates crypto. And there's a lot of irony there, because she's supposedly for the underbanked. She's supposedly a progressive. These technologies would actually help the unbanked. But she doesn't like the fact that people have made money off of this, and it upsets her. And she doesn't really understand it, okay? And so this is this old-world septuagenarian thinking. And the last factor is Sam Bankman-Fried, and I'm happy to talk about him. It's like if Bernie Madoff had a baby with John Merriweather, uh, the baby was Sam Bankman-Fried. You got the leverage and the fraud 
mixed in together. It was a double whammy of things. And he embarrassed all of them. He put $50, $60 million in their campaign coffers. He went around Washington, had many visits with Gensler and others uh, talking about crypto. He was seen as a white knight. uh, And he turned out to be a dark knight. And he embarrassed all of them. And so the pendulum is now swinging super hard against the industry. They got embarrassed and fooled by a charlatan. I did too, by the way. So I'm not criticizing them as much as I'm just observing this. And a result of which their reaction formation is to come after the whole industry and to show how tough they are. And they want to make a bias now that everybody in the industry is guilty and there are no innocents in the industry. So it's not innocent and proven guilty. Everyone in your industry is guilty and there are no innocents. And they want to do something which is non-American. So let me explain what that is. It's like if I have invented the airplane and we're now going to fly people around, I'm going to give the driver's ed manual to the FAA and say, okay, just follow the traffic lights and the ground traffic and use that for the purposes of the air. You can't do that, right? And that's what they're doing. Okay, so they're taking old school 1930s, 1940s, regulation of traditional finance and they're trying to apply it to DeFi. And so now you're coming up with regs that are for like web 2.5 as opposed to web 3.0. And they know better. They, they could do exactly what Franklin Roosevelt did. Okay. Which they could go to the community and say, who are the riffraff uh, back in the twenties? There were banksters who are the bad actors in the banking system How do we weed them out? How do we design laws to protect ourselves from them? You know, he said famously that I'm hiring a fox to keep charge of and to protect the hen house from other foxes. He put Jack Kennedy's dad, Joseph P. Kennedy, in charge of the SEC. He was a stock market manipulator and a little bit of a bankster. uh, and, And Roosevelt had common sense. And then he went to the industry and he said, okay, we need you guys to self regulate. You got to be team players. So we're going to have belts and suspenders on the industry. We're going to have an SRO, which is now known as FINRA. We're going to have the SEC. So we're going to have self-regulation, governmental regulation. And what that will do is it will improve and increase the trust in the industry, which will allow for more arterial flow of capital through our capitalist society. So they could go back to that playbook. They could go to Brian Armstrong, you guys at Copper. They could go to other people and say, what do we need? And how do we do this? And oh, by the way, we can't use ground traffic for air traffic. And so we need to regulate this differently. Um, not saying that a lot of these things aren't securities, they perhaps are, but they're, they're now doing it without legislation. They're now doing it by decree. And autocracies really shouldn't work. Gensler shouldn't be the one opining on what is a security and what isn't a security. You have something called the Howey test. A lot of things pass or don't pass the Howey test. And he's telling you, yeah, I passed the Howey test, but I'm still going to designate it as a security. Come on, guys. You can't do that. You, you see what I'm saying? And, 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 and so, so now we're in this situation where we're in retracement. They're going to set us back five or 10 years relative to our competitors globally. And uh, okay, but you know, it's not going to stop Bitcoin. You know, when the miners left China, 10% of the mining was still being done in China. It's not, not going to stop Bitcoin. 
Bitcoin's like water, man. You're going to shut down the internet to stop Bitcoin? Good luck. Also, remember, Bitcoin's intangible property in the U.S. The IRS already designated that. We we love property in the U.S. We, we have protected property through a 900-year-old common law legal system that dates back to the Magna Carta. So you're now going to say that you're going to take the property away? And remember, when they took the gold away on April 5th, 1933, they paid $20.17 an ounce because you have something called eminent domain. You can't take it away if it's property without giving you something for it that's fair. You know, the, the country has been so ridiculously successful because of our laws and the sanctity of them. People believe in the laws. When you live in our autocracy, the ruler makes the laws. And they can be arbitrary and they can be capricious and they can be unpredictable, right? Good luck getting your property out of China because, you know, the law may be applicable one day and it may not be the other day, but not in a decentralized system like the United States. So what are you guys doing? Do you want to move to an autocratic system for Bitcoin because Sam fooled you? Come on, guys, you're smarter than this. And why, why hurt the country when we, we've had the mantle of financial services leadership for 125 years, why would you want to set us back like that? Kate has a question for us. Can America get back on the level of the first movers in crypto? And how long could that take? Not very long because we're still 25, 27% of the world's GDP. All we have to do, and thank God in our country, we have a circulation of these Elites, they constantly circulate in and out of these uh, offices. If we can find somebody that's uh, pragmatic and would want to adopt a Rooseveltian idea about the regulation of uh, DeFi, uh, making it different from TradFi, we could we could do this very quickly. Uh, this industry is moving at a breakneck speed. Um, again, ten times in five years. Ten times in five years. Don't miss that opportunity. And, and, don't, and don't miss the intellectual growth, the capital growth. And, and what I would say to Kate and others, this is just this wonderful delayering system. Someday you're going to be able to walk into my restaurant, which is the Hunt and Fish Club, and you're going to be able to buy your meal and your drinks off your phone using a stable coin, a Bitcoin, a Solana coin, a something coin, and you're going to bypass American Express and the 3% charge. So this is this wonderful delayering mechanism. So for a restaurant that has a 15% gross margin, that's a 20% improvement in the margin. The margin goes from 15 to 18. That means that the waiters and waitresses make more money or you can sell more food at a lower cost. There's, there's, there's unbelievable economic efficiency in this system that's being built. And, you know, why wouldn't we use that? Every time we've had a better system in our society, we've used it. And so all we need is a change in leadership, political leadership, and we would get right back in there. Uh, and yeah, listen, we may, the courts may help us too. You don't know. I mean, I can't speak to the Ripple case, but I've read the written arguments and listened to the oral arguments in the Grayscale Bitcoin trust case for the conversion to ETF. Boy, that's going to be a tough one for the government, the SEC, to win that one. Now, the bad news for the Grayscale is it gets remanded back to the SEC, and they can find other reasons to stall it, but they're not going to be able to prevent a Bitcoin ETF in the country. 
because they've already approved the futures and we have administrative law that says you can't be arbitrary and capricious. So, I mean, I guess they could disallow the Bitcoin futures, but that would also be unprecedented and it would be very difficult for them to pull that off. There, there has been this narrative since 2017 that Bitcoin ETF would open sort of the floodgates. Do you think this narrative actually can hold true? We have several ETFs and ETPs around the world. There are plenty of ways to get exposure to Bitcoin in the US. Um, why do we need an ETF? It's got an uh, adoption curve coming. You know, so, so to me, if you have a billion people that own a Bitcoin, some form of a Bitcoin, a fraction of a Bitcoin, it'll be worth several hundred thousand a coin. And moreover, um, we're lazy. We're lazy. You know, people don't want to go to Coinbase or Copper and store it there or store it on their wallet. Uh, they want BlackRock or Grayscale to store it for them or Fidelity. And so the problem is you've got trillions of dollars of assets in the U.S. And so if you have a ETF, you're forcing everybody into the pool. Morgan Stanley's going to have their own ETF or use an ETF. Goldman will have one. You're not going to go to a private investor who just sold his business and say, well, I have no digital asset strategy. You're going to be like, yes, I have a digital strategy. Do you want to own Bitcoin? You can buy it through our ETF. So you're going to force every single financial services provider to have an ETF, a result of which if you get 1% of the $25 trillion of assets, okay, that could potentially go into it, you're going to push up the price. We are talking about price, though, Anthony, here. Like, we are not talking about adoption. We're talking about a forced push of price because of the limited supply that we've got. We're not talking, we're not particularly talking about adoption through an ETF, are we? No, I think the, I think they're concomitant. I think it's a virtuous circle. I think that you get more owners, then people are more interested. You get the lightning network up on something like Bitcoin, and all of a sudden, uh, the regulations are okay. You know, my restaurant right now, because of the regulations in New York, they cannot accept Bitcoin. Okay, I, I'm not going to spend $5 million on a bit license to have someone come into the restaurant and spend $100 worth of Bitcoin on their meal. But, you know, you're talking about a situation, you know, uh, President Bukele from El Salvador predicts that there'll be a $400 million savings between expats that live in the U.S., and their family members that live back in El Salvador, the transfer of money that now goes through Western Union or MoneyGram, which costs these families 10% of the money. I mean, you got to think about this, Senator Warren. These are unbanked people working super hard for their money. They take 10 $100 bills into Western Union. They lose $100 to Western Union. $900 goes back to mom. You know, Bukele says he'll save $400 million a year in a wallet-to-wallet -wallet transfer. That's enough incentive to have adoption. I mean, Anthony, they could do that without Bitcoin today. MoneyGram and Stellar and USDC, I believe, have kind of made this partnership where you can cash in in a MoneyGram um, store and cash out. You just gave me you just gave me DeFi versus TradeFi, though. What you just sure. said. You're moving those cotton those cotton Italian singles into into a store, right. and they're coming out right. the other side by using the Stellar blockchain and the USDC, which is which is good. It's a it's a step towards integration. Why aren't we working towards a path towards integration and saying no? We need to we need to completely dismantle the central banking 
system that's not working for XYZ reasons. Well, because because we don't like change in our society and also the, the powers that be in the political process, they don't want that. And they've also now made a mistake. They've admitted to the sanctions being a mistake. It's weakened the supremacy of the dollar and they don't want to further weaken that. And so they're going to do everything they can to slow roll it but the weird thing about that is that they don't understand it could be complementary. They don't have to fear freedom of thinking and intellectual innovation. They should be embracing it. Again, make our society stronger by making these types of ideas reality because you'll save people money. You'll save them time. It'll unleash more economic innovation and technological growth, which is better for your country, more tax revenues, more stability. There's no reason why the dollar can't sit complementary to these tokens. You know, I own something called Casper Labs, which is a uh, token, CSPR, and it's basically a decentralized token for enterprise software. Okay, and they're building these decentralized enterprise software protocol, it's so much cheaper and so much more efficient than going to centralized enterprise systems. And that will become a reality. But because you hate Bitcoin and stuff, you're going to stop the innovation of something like Casper. I mean, come on, guys. It's a utility function. It's not a it's not a cryptocurrency. It's not a security. It's literally just a utility credit for having enterprise software available to your business. Why do you want to stop that? It's so much cheaper. And also, you have to be worried about the monolithic big tech companies controlling everything. You now have technology that will decentralize that and create a flatter universe that's more economically efficient. Why do you want to stop that? One of the, my, my favorite quotes, I can't remember which book this was in, but it was, force respects greater force. And it seems that the U.S. has not had this sort of pressure until now, recently, where the discussion around the U.S. dollar losing its reserve status is kind of starting to brew a little bit more. And BRICS nations um, are sounding so sort of a potential currency pegged to a basket of commodities and potentially more members joining. If technology can tokenize and provide liquidity for trapped natural resources, a growing GDP, a dominance of global exports led by China, is it possible that we see a shift in foreign policy structures that have been tied to a dollar system that has been sort of weaponized in the past with the use of sanctions regimes or deplatforming from from SWIFT and payment networks and whatever you have. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so, I mean, look, you're on to it, Fadi. You don't need me to explain it. You're on to it. So what I would be more interested in is let's start from scratch. Here's the whiteboard. Here are the American assets. Here's the American culture, great culture of entrepreneurship, ability to accept failure and resilience, all these great immigrant success stories that have arrived in America, an unbelievably good legal system, a great university education system. Let's talk about what our assets are. Okay, and then let's talk about the coming struggle that America is going to have to stay this vibrant, buoyant economy. Uh, what would our grandfathers say? What would George Marshall or Dean Atkinson or Harry Truman say? He would say, hey, this worked. This post-World War II architecture was designed 
to create rising living standards around the world. So when we ended the war, America was 65% of the GDP, 3% of the world's economy. 80 years later, we're 6% of the world's population and 25% of the GDP. This has worked. Richer, more prosperous world will lead to less conflict. So why are we fighting? Why can't we build a new system, a new ability to embrace whatever is happening in the world? Why do we need a unipolar world? Because we had one. We had a bipolar world before the wall came down. It became unipolar. We're used to that. Is that the world that we're going to be living in in 15 or 20 years? Perhaps not. So why not come up with the right plan and the right differentiation and competitive advantages so that we can be in an unbelievable prime position? We have such competitive advantage against these people because what did Lee Kuan Yew say when he asked, before he died, the founder of Singapore said, hey, don't bet against America. You can go to America in five years, become American, Italian-American, German-American. You can't go to Germany and become American-German. You're not going to Japan and becoming American-Japanese. You can come to America. This is an unbelievable experiment. This is what Lincoln said, the best, last best hope for mankind. Why not use that polyglot and the idea of America and reunite America and have transformational leadership that ends some of the tribalism to explain what America really is and what the opportunity is. And oh, by the way, why do we need to be threatened by China? We don't have to be threatened by China. Here's what we're going to do to protect America. Here's what we're going to do to build America. So the America's stronger 50 years from now than it is today. And wherever China is, why do we care? Okay, we don't need them to be a threat to us because they're a rising superpower. We don't need that. We can figure out a way to cohabitate with them. They're not stupid people, and we're not stupid people. So why do we have to have this bellicosity of rhetoric and this rise of nationalism when we can have something that's way better for our people and will increase the living standards and create more aspirational opportunity in our country? You know, ironically, I don't see the U.S., completely far behind with this whole experiment in crypto. And I'll tell you why. So there's a lot of alternative options growing outside sort of the fractional reserve banking that are coming to life. And you can you can see that with Circles USDC, which is 80% T-bills, so it's not in the banking system. Uh, or you've got new projects that you can b- buy T-bills in the DeFi space um, by Open Eden that launched recently, or even Ondo Finance, which has a stable coin backed by bonds now directly. So the philosophy of money is changing to account perhaps for the lack of transparency in the banking system. Um, although the US has not been uh, very welcoming to the industry, the industry continues to tokenize U.S. real-world assets and focuses around the U.S. No one's tokenizing, you know, European bonds or mm-hmm. Chinese bonds. They're tokenizing T-bills. I, 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 I accept that. I accept what you're saying, but why slow that down? Agreed. Why, why? Why do we have to slow that down? I accept that we're not that far behind, which is why the Kate question I said, a couple of changes in the elites and we can get right to where we 
we're right to where we need to be. So I accept all that. But I guess my rhetorical response to that would be, what what are you guys doing exactly? You know, I got a buddy of mine I went to high school with. He's former SEC enforcement guy. I debated him on some Wall Street Journal uh, show. Hates crypto. It's mathematical blather. It's absolutely useless. If it died, no one would care. Okay. And he hates it because he thinks it's introducing a lot of fraud and a lot of misnomers and bad actors. But let me tell you something. In every time that you've had a new technology, new medicine, the rail system, telecommunications, Web 1, it had fraudsters. Unfortunately, it inducts fraudsters. Jay Gould was making up fake stock certificates related to the rail industry in the great robber baron era. So what are you going to do? You're going to say, okay, we got Sam Bankman fried who's a total fraud. We should shut down the industry any more than we should have shut down the rail industry in the 1890s that was linking the 48 states and creating this amazing behemoth of a global economy that every one of our grandparents benefited from? So I asked ChatGPT, give me three questions you would ask Anthony Scaramucci. You want to hear okay. them? Do you want to go for them? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So number one, you famously served as the White House Communications Director for just 11 days in 2017. Looking right. back, do you think there were main factors that led to your short tenure in the role? And what lessons did you learn from that experience? Well, I just want to th- thank Chad GDP for getting the days right. Some people say 10 and it hurts my feelings. So I just want to thank Chad GDP for not hurting my feelings and getting the days right. Okay, so the... The answer to the question is I'm very grateful for that service because when you get fired like that, it's incredibly humbling. I mean, I was lit up on late night television and I was destroyed in the media and you learn a lot about yourself when you do that. Do you have the resilience to come back from all that? And it's another lesson for young and old people. Don't give a shit and keep moving and life is good. Um, The lesson that I learned is that the millstone of regret, I made a mistake in the White House. I said something about Steve Bannon. You can look it up. It's not appropriate rated R what I said. The reporter recorded it and ran to CNN with it. And it was really fucking funny, by the way. And by the way, it was true because look at what Steve Bannon's like eight years later, but that's all fine and dandy. I made a mistake. I deserve to be fired. So here are the lessons. Number one, you make a mistake, own the mistake, be accountable for it. Number two, particularly if you're an entrepreneur, drop the regrets and drop the pity party and the self-victimizing, okay? Take the millstone of regret off your neck, put it down beside you. Don't worry about it or think about it. Focus on your future. And I think the third thing I would say to people is stay in your lane and don't allow your ego and your pride to affect your decision-making. You know, Ryan's Priebus and Steve Bannon were coming after me, Fadi. I called Trump and said, you know, those are bad guys. If you want help getting rid of them, call me. I'll come down to Washington and help you do that. And he fucking called me and I let my pride and my ego get the better of me and I went and did it. Now, they got blown out in the same week as I did, okay? Bannon was such a baby, they fired him on the same day, but he begged to stay for like 14 more days, the baby, right? Yeah, but so so did he get 26 days or 25 days? No, he he, he stayed for like eight months. He got a many Scaramucci's. If the time unit is is measured in 11 days, you can ask Chad GBT how many Scaramucci's did ban and serve. It was probably like 80 or something, but, well, but, but you know, maybe not that many, but, but here's the point I'm making. Okay. Live your life 
without a lot of regret because you're ta- if you're taking risk and you're a nonconformist, they're going to write bad shit about you. They're going to make fun of you. But you know what? You could be onto something. You know, my, my son's 30 years old. He's like, Dad, you're killing me. He just graduated from Stanford Business School. He's like, the Democrats hate you because you were with Trump. The Republicans hate you because you left Trump. I mean, you're killing my networking opportunities. And I said to him, I might be doing that, but I may be closer to the truth. Well, so I, think I, I, I think your All son right. might might be chat GPT because the second question was, was yeah, good. you've been a vocal critic of former President Donald Trump in recent years, despite previously being a supporter of his. What caused you to change your stance on Trump? And what do you think the future of the Republican Party looks like in a post-Trump era? No, well, I changed on Trump because he's a complete jackass. He's not capable of running the government. He doesn't have the intellectual curiosity or the executive management skills. And he kept defining deviancy downward by doing more and more stupid things. And any smart, rational patriot, okay, that's not politically contrived like a Kevin McCarthy or a Ted Cruz would tell the American people the truth that this guy's an imbecile and he's not serving your interests. Moreover, he tried to insurrect the government. He's the wrong messenger for your movement. Find a different messenger. So it was his defining deviancy downward that caused me to break from Trump. He also went after my wife on Twitter. I mean, only he would do that. That's why I had to call him the fattest president since William Howard Taft. And he got really upset about that because he hates being so fat. Uh, And then I started calling him tiny Trump. And so since this is an audio cast, I'll let you guys figure out what that means. Okay. But I got that from Stormy Daniels. That really upset the son of a bitch, right? That's also where all the hyper masculinity and the, orange war paint is from and all that shit. You know what I mean? But I'm a New Yorker. I'm not Ted Cruz. If you're coming after me and my family and I live in a country where you're working for me, I'm not working for you. I'm coming right back at you. Okay. What's the third question? Go ahead. Last question. You are the founder of Skybridge Capital and manages over 7 billion in assets. Remember this was up till 2021, the data. What do you see as the biggest challenge and opportunities facing the investment industry in the coming years? And how is your firm positioned itself to navigate these changes. It's it's two points. First of all, that was an exaggerated number because I had 3 billion of that was non-advisory assets. So the actual 2021 number was 4 billion. I'm at 2.4 billion right now. I got my ass kicked in 2022, although we had a really, really good first quarter. And I would say to you that I think we're very well positioned. We have about 20-ish percent in crypto. If I'm right, it goes 10 to one over the next five years. And hopefully you'll invite me back on the Coppercast and we'll be running real $7 billion, not the fake number that was represented by chat GDT. But I'm not, I'm not going anywhere and I'm a stubborn bastard. So if you're going to try to kill me, you better cremate my ass because I'm coming out of the grave to haunt you. Okay. And it's too bad. I'm sorry about that, but I'm a young guy still in my mind. I've got over $50 million on my balance sheet sitting there to protect the firm. Uh, and we might be right about what we're doing. And if we are right, you know, uh, you know th- the problem is they won't write that story because the press only likes bad stories. But if we are right, it'll be fun. Well, we're, we'll love to have you back, Anthony, when you are right, because we hope you're right. And uh, we'll cross that bridge. All right. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. As always, we appreciate you tuning into Coppercasts. Follow me for regular updates on cryptocurrency macro research, digital assets, and distributed financial market infrastructure. My handle is at Fadi Abuelfa. Thank you to my producer, Kate Light, for continued support. And if you would want to get in touch, 
email us at marketing at copper.co or find us on Twitter at CopperHQ. This podcast has been prepared for informational purposes only without regard to any individual investment objectives, financial situation or means and Copper is not soliciting any action based upon it. This podcast is not to be construed as a recommendation or an offer to buy or sell any security, financial product, instrument or to participate in any particular trading strategy. Certain transactions, including those in digital assets, give rise to substantial risk and are not suitable for all investors. The value of digital assets may go down and your capital and assets may be at risk.